Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 74. There's a theory that you could wander into just about any decent-sized town across the world, and before long, you'll discover a Scot, or someone clearly descended from the great Scottish diaspora. And we're not just talking about the likes of the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand here. Many years ago, I was watching Argentina play football when I was astonished to see a red-haired left-back called Carlos McAllister take the field for them. Born and bred in Argentina, he was descended from a settler from Fife. And a recent article in the Times revealed that by the end of the 17th century, no less than 30,000 Scots had settled across the sprawling Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And the influence lives on through Polish surnames such as Macled and Sinclair. Please excuse my Polish pronunciation there. Now, the team at the Scottish Business Network have long since latched on to the latent potential of Scotland's huge global diaspora, something that's being celebrated through the organisation's Scottish International Week that begins on the 2nd of November 2021. For information on the great lineup of speakers and how to book your free tickets, simply visit scottishinternationalweek.com. All of which, in a very roundabout way, brings me to this episode's guest, herself a great example of the inquisitive and adventurous Scottish diaspora. After falling in love with Turkey during a six-week backpacking tour as a student, Caroline Finkel has spent most of the past 30 years living in Istanbul and developing a reputation as a leading Ottoman historian. In fact, we're pretty sure that we must have met when I spent some time working with her husband for an Istanbul-based newspaper many years ago. So it's a slightly unusual Scottish Business Network podcast, and certainly the only one to take a dip into Ottoman history and Turkish culture. But I very much enjoyed hearing from Caroline in this interview that was recorded on the 15th of October 2021. If you enjoy this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Scottish Business Network on Apple Music, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice. Caroline Finkel, great to speak to you. How are you? Um, Good to hear you. It's been a long time. It has been a very long time indeed, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Let's start by looking back to where it all began. So where did you grow up, Caroline, and what was family life like for you? Well, I grew up in Argyll on Loch Awe, very in a very isolated situation on a sheep farm. My father was a, a working farmer, and um, I mean, he we have Scottish roots from Fife, but he had sort of grown up in the south. But to get away from his family, bought a sheep farm up there <laughs> in the early 50s, and um, that's where I grew up. My only friends were the sheep really, because there was no one else much around. <laughs> was it um, a happy childhood? Well, it was happy, but it was, you know, it was very isolated. And so I went to boarding school in Calendar at the age of six right. because there was just me and I had a two-year-old sister by then, but she wasn't, you know, very much use in the sort of companion companionship stakes. So, um, yeah, that's how it worked out. So, Caroline, I invited you on the show because you are – part of the, the great Scottish diaspora that has settled around the world. So when did you first visit Turkey and, and what initial pre- impressions did it make on you? Well, I had a very um, sheltered upbringing and I knew nothing about Turkey, even where it was, I'd probably barely heard of it. You know, I grew up, I mean, I was born in 52. So, you know, for younger generations, those days were prehistoric and very different from anything they would be familiar with. 
So by chance, I was at university and um, I had friends who were a bit more enlightened with me than me, and they were heading east to Iran, in fact, but via Turkey um, with a Land Rover, which had two spaces in it. And my best girlfriend from school and I um, went with them with these two young doctors and another male friend, went out to Turkey and we arrived in Istanbul and, you know, <laughs> culture shock at the age of 18. It was extraordinary, really. In fact, we stayed for six weeks. Uh, my girlfriend and I, the others, continued to Iran. In the days when, you know, going overland was very normal. It's a very different, again, from, from how things are now. We were very free to do that. But when I, the first thing that struck me in Turkey, really, because it was more familiar, and I hadn't heard of Islam, um, or, you know, anything related to that, was the Byzantine art and, you know, the Byzantine churches. I mean, Hagia Sophia and the lesser churches in Istanbul. Mm. Um, was what really impressed me at the beginning. But then, you know, I traveled, hitchhiked all over Anatolia for for six weeks with a British guy we met in a hotel somewhere, um, sleeping by the side of the road, wow. mostly in lorries. I mean, it was just amazing, <laughs> really, looking back. We went right down to the southeast to Gaziantep. You know, we just, just hitched where, where um, the mood took us or where the lorries were going. And, and never any sense of danger? Well, they were sort of, lorry drivers seemed to be more interested in him than in me because he had fair hair and bright blue eyes. He was a very beautiful young man. But this, this um, uh, experience obviously ignited something in you. Uh, so tell us, I mean, what happened next? You, you, I mean, you went on to to take a, to do a PhD in Ottoman history. Was that shortly after or did that come later? No, no, that came later because when I left university, I sort of did the boring thing and went to work in a bank. Um, but I sort of, you know, I, because of my experience in Turkey, I did have this sort of call from elsewhere and got involved in, you know, societies and things in London where I was to do with that. And then I left the bank and eventually I went back to university to SOAS, School of Oriental African Studies. I did an MA there um, and then I went on and did a PhD in Ottoman history. So my sort of training as an Ottoman historian was rather erratic. It wasn't, you know, the normal progression. Um, but that's, yes, I just couldn't really resist it anymore. Well, I mean, at what point did you then move across to Istanbul or sort of spend a lot of time there? Well, I went a lot through the 70s. I mean, when, once I'd sort of given up that job and was doing bits and pieces, you know, there were Turkish courses I could join in Turkey where they, you know, paid for you to do these courses um, and all sorts of other things things, you know, related one could do then. But, and I, you know, went on digs. I went on a dig in Libya, for instance, um, in 1977, I think it was. So, I mean, this sort of Islamic world had grabbed me very much by the 70s. And, and then, you know, after doing the MA and because Turkey was obviously going to be my main focus, um, I did my PhD research in Istanbul in the archives. And you, you married a, a fellow Turkophile, the American journalist Andrew Finkel, who was many years ago my boss when I was in Istanbul. So how did, how did you meet and then, you know, presumably then settled down in Istanbul? Well, I mean, you may home. not be aware of his sort of backstory, which that before he became a journalist... Uh, he too was doing a PhD, and um, we met in Turkey, both of us. He wasn't in the archives because he was doing sociology, but we met actually at a mutual friend's wedding by chance, and um, it was the summer. I had a car, I had a little beetle I'd driven out in, and we wanted to go to the beach, which we did very often, and that was it, really. Uh, 
I did go to the archives and I did get my PhD <laughs> done. But um, we did spend quite a lot of time that summer having fun. We lived there from, that was then 81 to 83. Then we came back during the 80s. We were, you know, grappling with writing up and so on, which um, I'm sure Andy won't mind me saying he didn't finish because he went on to an honourable career Hmm. in another field. Um, And then in 89, when you met him, um, we had come back and he was editing the paper, which you worked on together. That's right. Um, so, and really since 89, with few gaps, you know, we've been there continuously. You've written several books about Turkey, but are best known for Osman's Dream, the story of the Ottoman Empire, 1300 to 1923. This sounds like the book that you, you perhaps always wanted to, to write since you first developed your love affair with Turkey. What was the process like and how pleased are you with the results? Osman's Dream was absolutely not on my horizon. I um, I mean, the idea that one would be able to write a book about something like the Ottoman Empire, of which, you know, so, pe- so few people had much sense, or if they did, you know, it was in a very distorted way, um, just would not have occurred to me, really. I mean, I was more, con- you know, my PhD book came out, which was a military history, um, new military history, not about, you know, battles and things, but about logistics and financing war. And I'd done a book on um, historical uh, earthquakes, uh, historical seismicity of the Ottoman Empire and of Turkey particularly. And um, this just dropped in my lap because my good friend Philip Mansell, who wrote a book called Constantinople um, for John Murray, and Andrew Mango, who was a sort of, had actually grown up in Istanbul and who was a sort of eminence grise, had written a book for the same series on Ataturk. And somehow I got the gig for doing an Ottoman history. It was a huge bit of luck. And um, actually, it was pretty slow, the process. I mean, I wanted to, I wanted there to be, which there wasn't at that time, to be an overall history of the Ottoman Empire that was like, you know, any other history, Roman history, history of China, whatever, but written by someone who had familiarity with the sources by an Ottoman historian rather than just by, you know, random people who lived in Turkey or whatever and didn't actually have any experience of, uh, you know, the Ottoman sources on which this history should be based. So that's, yeah, that's how it happened. Pretty daunting undertaking, I would imagine. It's such a, a vast period of time that you're, you're gathering. Did, did, did the experience of writing the book um, change the way you, you thought about the Ottoman Empire in any particularly sort of striking ways? Well, it's strange because, I mean, the Turks are very, or yes, I guess they still are really, were certainly, you know, very sensitive to outside opinion. I mean, now, you know, they're more forceful and so on, perhaps they have more of a confidence in their persona for better or worse. Um, But at that time, you know, they were very sensitive about it. And I didn't want to write a history that sort of cow tied to Ottoman's idea or to sorry, to Turk's ideas of Ottoman history, which were, you know, basically that, you know, the Turks were best. It was all very nationalistic. There was lots of red lines, as you will know from your journalism. Um, And I tried to avoid that. And in a way, I think I did managed to steer a middle course because the book has been for a long time it's in several languages, but it's also been on university curriculums um, in Turkey. It's sold very well for that purpose, but also in the States. 
Uh, you know, a lot of my colleagues use the book and presumably elsewhere. But I think I probably did steer uh, quite a, you know, an, a good, good course between, you know, the one side and the other. You could say, I mean, I tried to offend nobody, which wouldn't be a good thing to say because you're meant to offend people when you write. <laughs> Hopefully you offended both sides. In, well, in I hope ways. I did in, in some degree. Yeah. But, you know, I'm happy that, that it's it's done well in Turkey because I think it's a, you know, it's a solid sort of a book and it doesn't didn't sort of fall into many of the traps that Turks at that time who wrote about Ottoman history um, you know, tended to fall into because they didn't have a, as wide an experience of the outside world as they do now. It's it's a very changed balance, and for the better now. You've also co-written a book about the Evliya Çelebi Way, Turkey's first long-distance walking, cycling, and horse riding route. Uh, Çelebi sounds quite a character. Can you tell us a bit about him and the walk? Well, I mean, I could go on for hours about this because this is my <laughs> sort of you know favourite subject. Um, he was a 17th century, a courtier essentially, but someone who travelled, you know, for 40 years of his life from, you know, Vienna to Kazan in Russia, I mean, you know, to the east of eastern parts, and then, you know, north and south, up the Nile, um, and left probably the longest um, travel account in world history which unfortunately is not available in full in English, though there are books that, you know, with excerpts and so on, and um, one published fairly recently, which is very accessible. Um, but in 1671, he went on his pilgrimage to Mecca, as good Muslims must, and as he had long wanted to do. And we decided to follow his the initial parts of his route in Western Anatolia on horseback, um, which we did for six weeks. But then it had to become also, you know, a hiking route because it's not actually that easy to get hold of horses. This was in 2009. 2011 was the 400th anniversary of his birth, quite by chance. We weren't really aware of that. Um, he should be much more famous in the outside world. I don't know why he isn't, except maybe because of the lack of a full text. Um, he's was an amazing character. He was a polymath. He could do, you know, pretty much anything. His account is humorous. It's fantastical. It's also very documentary. You know, he visits cities in Anatolia and obviously beyond in the Ottoman Empire and describes them in great detail. And much of the information we now have about these places comes from his travel account. So, you know, he's my sort of top Ottoman and... Um, <laughs> We've, we we created this, this long-distance hiking path. Um, the guide was published. And it's now part of something called the Via Eurasia, which is a 5,000-kilometer trekking route that goes from Canterbury via Rome across oh, the wow. Adriatic, you know, along the Via Ignatia and down south to the south of Turkey, um, using other routes. But, uh, mm. you know, it's now sort of becoming a, 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 a whole and the Evliya Çelebi Way is an integral part of that. He was a pilgrim, but, you know, when people think of pilgrims, they think of, you know, Christian pilgrims. But he was a Muslim mm. pilgrim and uh, a very interesting character. And, and 
you know, apart from our Istanbul connection, one thing we've both got in common is the um, is I, I'm a massive fan of long distance walking as well. And clearly, from the sound oh. of this project, you are too, Caroline. Are you you also involved in something called the the Hiking Istanbul project? Gosh, well, next time I come up to Edinburgh, we should do some walks because um, yeah, it's my, definitely. Yeah, it's, yes, we just started an, another project myself and some friends, which is twenty kilometer day walks in the hinterland of Istanbul, because. That uh, area, that region, is suffering massively environmentally and from uh, construction. And the villages that have been there for centuries, their history is being lost. They're being lost. They're being, you know, buried under concrete and airports and all the rest of it. So that's another project. That's my sort of sixth book, which I'm involved in. Uh, you know, we do these walks. It's pretty amazing. We sort of go beelining through impenetrable brush. We have to sort of go under fences. We get stopped by the gendarme because they're in the wrong place. It's not like walking on the tops <laughs> of the Pentlands or something or in Scotland. It's a, it's another thing altogether. Turkey at the moment is is undergoing what, what some people would call a bit of a disaster in terms of the, the, the environment. And I wonder in terms of your experiences of, of hiking, etc. I wonder what, what your perspective is on that, Caroline. Yes, it's really very sad. I mean, Turkey didn't sign the or subscribe to the Paris, um, is it agreement protocol, um, until very recently when they were sort of put on the spot. Environmental issues take a very, very low, a very, very low priority. There are valiant groups that try to put this on the agenda, but, you know, they get into all sorts of trouble. Um, it's really, really sad. It has, as you'll know, one of the um, most important floras, uh, anywhere. Uh, the richness of the flora is extraordinary in Turkey as a whole and around Istanbul. I mean, I've walked in a lot of places in Turkey, um, routes, you know, in the south, in the interior and so on. But now, most recently, having walked around Istanbul, the destruction is just, is, is horrifying. And no one really seems to take it on board. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a luxury in a way to care, be able to care about the environment because people need to make a living. And Wages of most people in Turkey are very low. They want their kids, you know, to get a leg up. So, and nobody, as you'll be aware, particularly wants to be a farmer these days. So rather than farming in the village with their few sheep and crops, you know, they go and work in a factory in the city. And sort of real care and understanding of the um, of the environment uh, is 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 very generally at a low level. Um, in in Istanbul society or in Turkey as a general, as, as, as a rule, um, which is very sad, you know, clean air. Well, I mean, we have our own problems here, don't we? We're not exactly, uh, you know, angels in this. So I'm less, less um, able to criticize Turkey because what's happening everywhere else is is, is terrible too. But it's just, it's extremely sad with such rich historical background you know, natural background, such wonderful landscapes, and it's being lost. It's being lost. Now, you, you occasionally visit Scotland, but most of your time is divided between Istanbul and, and currently London. How has your perspective on Scotland changed over the years, Caroline, and, and what do you miss about it? Well, when I was there on the sheep farm in Argyle, I couldn't get away fast enough, really. And now I feel terribly nostalgic. And every time I go over the border at Berwick, my heart gives a little leap. I love it. And every time I go up, uh, like today you're describing, um, the weather seems to be good, even in February. 
My family is now there, um, having left Argyle some time ago. I adore going up there. And when I go up there, I, I walk as much as I can. I mean, the hills are on your doorstep. It's so easy to do that. Um, and then, of course, there's the wonderful Walk Highlands site, which you'll know well. It's just dead easy to, to enjoy yourself mm. there. You can walk everywhere and in the city and, out, and outside. So that's what I miss. I mean, I can walk in Turkey. You can walk anywhere. But, uh, mm. you know, walking in Scotland is very special with the light, which you don't get anywhere else. Because of uh, COVID travel restrictions, you, you've also can, been locked out of Istanbul for some time. So from your position in London, what do you miss about Turkey and what will be some of the first things that you do when you return to Istanbul? Well, I miss I miss walking. I miss our walks. Um, I miss the people. I miss my friends. I miss my neighbourhood. When I go back, I, my first task is to finish the current book, which is the hiking book. I'm writing about 50 of the villages that we go through on our villages and suburbs that we go through on our hikes around Istanbul. Um, and I'll, I hope, if the season is right, dip into a warm sea because hmm. there hasn't been that much of that recently with COVID and being stuck in London or even in Edinburgh. I do go into a loch when I'm walking if it's at all possible, but uh, there's nothing quite like a warm sea. Very brave. I'm not, not a, a big fan of swimming in the, the water up here. <laughs> too, too much of a coward. Um, well, we're going to finish up with five quick questions here. Are you ready? Yep. <laughs> What's your favourite place in Turkey? I don't know, the top of a mountain somewhere with the sun shining. <laughs> Friends arrive unexpectedly at your house and ask you to rustle up a Turkish meal. What would you make? Well, I'm a vegetarian now, and so my choices are less, are more limited than they were. It wouldn't be a kebab. If I was not a vegetarian, it would be something called hamsi pilau, which is an anchovies and rice dish that's delis delicious. Otherwise, oh. for vegetables, Turkey has a wonderful array of um, vegetables done in olive oil, zeytinyağlı, uh, which are delectable and you don't find in, in cuisine oh, here. You're making me nostalgic. I made uh, imam bayaldi, uh, if I've remembered the pronunciation vaguely correctly. I made that for my, my family last week, which is an aubergine dish. Uh, it went down like a lid balloon. <laughs> Who is your favourite historical Turkish figure and why? I think I know Well, the that's to very show. easy. It's Emilia Çelebi, of course, <laughs> and I wish the great Turkish nation would give him the recognition that he deserves. <laughs> Can you recommend a Turkish film? The film I that stayed with me the longest is a, a film, a 2012 film by Nurbilge Ceylan, who became actually very famous for his films um, that he did around that time, called Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. She's a very lyrical and beautiful uh, film in landscapes that are with people who are familiar to me and very close right. to my heart. And what does a perfect weekend in Istanbul look like for you? Well, that's obvious too. I'd be hiking. <laughs> Getting, trying to get under fences yes, and wandering exactly. through scrubland. Away from the gendarme. <laughs> Caroline Finkel, thanks very much. It's been really nice to speak to you and hear about uh, your life. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks very much indeed. Great to hear from Caroline. And just a, a reminder that if you're listening to this before the 10th of November 2021, then you can still access Scottish International Week. The tickets are free, great lineup of speakers. Simply visit scottishinternationalweek.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.